You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Thanks, Bill. If you're a Cleveland history buff, you will really enjoy this conversation with Betty Lou Higgins, author of the book, Lost Restaurants of Downtown Cleveland. I caught up with Betty Lou just as she received news that she'd be writing a sequel. There was actually so much information she couldn't fit into the first volume, which, believe it or not, covered iconic restaurants of yore only within the area between Public Square and Playhouse Square. This episode is made possible with the support of Chef Douglas Katz and the Katz Group of Restaurants and the 21st Century Club, who invited me to speak at one of their recent gatherings. Betty Lou is the perfect guest to interview in front of a live audience, so you will notice that there are many other people in the room And we do take some questions at the end. Betty Lou Higgins is a Clevelander with a deep knowledge of history, arts, and culture. She was tapped by Arcadia Publishing to write Lost Restaurants of Downtown Cleveland, part of the publisher's American Palette series. In our conversation, we cover many of the iconic, memorable, and highly unusual restaurants that are now part of our city's past. Though, I'd make a bet that even if you've never dined at any of these spots, Their storied histories are very much in the hearts and memories of longtime Clevelanders. Betty Lou actually speaks around town on the subject of this book, and we certainly look forward to another edition in the near future. Welcome, Betty Lou, to the CLE Foodcast. Thank you, Lisa. It's great to be here. Well, it's so great to be here, and I want to thank the 21st Century Club for hosting us today with my special guest, Betty Lou Higgins, author of Lost Restaurants of Downtown Cleveland. Let's just welcome Betty. (laughs) She does have a book table in the back, I will tell you. It is a great book. I discovered it on my own. We did not know each other until this process. That's true, we didn't. Yes, I think I... How did you find it? I believe I saw Mark Bona from The Plain Dealer. Uh, I think I saw one of his pieces, which really was low on detail, but it crossed my mind that maybe I should know the person who wrote the book about Lost Restaurants of Cleveland. So I ordered mine on Amazon probably, I don't know, six months ago. I've had it for quite a while. And there's so much in it that it prompts me to ask, um, what made you write this compilation of Lost Restaurants of Cleveland? Well, actually, what made me write it was the fact that the people at Arcadia Press called me and asked me to write it. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) So um, they found me because they have a series called The American Palette on lost restaurants of major cities across the country. They were looking to do one about Cleveland, didn't know who to call, and found my bylined article in the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History on restaurants. Ah. So they figured I must be the person to get a hold of. So they called me up and asked if I was interested, and as they say, the rest is history. You were obviously a person, you grew up here, let's start with that, you grew right. up in Garfield Heights. Right. So part of your childhood, part of your growing up was going occasionally to restaurants in the city, right? At least once a year, you could not grow up in downtown Cleveland, at least as far as I know, in the 60s without making a yearly trip into downtown Cleveland to see the Christmas windows, the Sterling Lindner tree, etc. And we usually went the weekend before Christmas, made the big trip, usually by bus, and walked all over downtown and saw all the windows, went to see Santa Claus, went to lunch. 
it was the big day of the year. Well, and I'm going to put in a plug for someone I know and love very well because I've done some PR work for him, Mr. Jingling. Oh, of course. Right? You had to see Mr. Jingling. Oh, yes. I grew up in Pittsburgh, but I had the same kind of experience. Once or twice a year, we would go down and look in my my town in Pittsburgh. Uh It was Gimbel's (laughs) and Kaufman's and, you know, we didn't have Sterling Lindner and all that. And we certainly did not have a Mr. Jingling. So now now that I've met Mr. Jingling. I'm so sorry. I know. I know. It's a a real crime. It's a real crime. But, you know, it's Pittsburgh, right? Um, So when you embarked on this, when you said you would do this book, uh, and and you have had a career as a historian, you've done some other very interesting things. So you're kind of a an expert researcher, I think, or at least you know how to do that research. Did you uncover just so much more than you imagined? Were you surprised about what you found? Yes and no. I wasn't surprised from the standpoint of Cleveland's history is so long and so rich. And also because I had written that article 100 years ago for the Cleveland Encyclopedia on restaurants, I had already scraped the surface on quite a bit of those. So I wasn't surprised from that standpoint. I think what did surprise me was that now that I was trying to focus in on a lot of those historic restaurants was the number of people who were involved, who were kind of famous in their own right. And also, as I started talking to people about the fact that I was doing this, the amount of interest in the topic is huge. And people have memories about all of these restaurants. And I was lucky enough to find people who were willing to share some memories that went into the book at the at the end of almost every chapter, there's a section on memories that people sent to me that um, talks about what they most liked about a place or remember about it. So, And I think it's worth saying, uh, because it's something I know that's very important to you and you, you like to make it very clear. This isn't like, it, it is comprehensive. It's a, it, it feels comprehensive. And yet, your geography for the book was very, very specific. Because I know I kept saying, Betty Lou, what about this place? What about this place? She'd go, not in the area that I was researching. (laughs) Uh, So tell me about the geography that is covered in this particular book. Okay, so my book goes from Public Square to Playhouse Square. And it's interesting because when they called, they said to me, we want you to cover Public Square to East 9th Street. Now, not really knowing anything about Cleveland restaurant history anyway, I said, oh, no, 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 you cannot have a history of restaurants and not go to Playhouse Square. That makes no sense. And Clevelanders will go nuts. So we argued about that for a while and finally said, okay, you can go to Playhouse Square. And then he said, and you cannot discuss any restaurant that is still in existence. Well, in that particular year, late 2017, early 2018, Otto Mosier's was sitting live and well in Playhouse Square. And I said, oh, no, no, no. I am not doing this book unless I can talk about Otto Mosier's and its functioning in Playhouse Square. Well, this was a big deal. No, you cannot talk about Playhouse Square. I said, I won't do the book unless I could do Otto Mosier's in Playhouse Square. It's the most (laughs) historical restaurant in the city, probably the oldest functioning one. I'm not doing it. So he said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad they listened to you. I mean, that was very wise. That was wise, except now I feel guilty because before I finished the book, Otto Mosier's went out of business. And so now they were legitimately allowed to be covered in the book. And I, I don't... 
I'm not happy about that. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic chapter. And um, I think when it closed, it was running continuously for a couple locations, though. They, had a, they, they, moved, they moved twice or once. Well, well, technically once, but they had a satellite kind of restaurant um, in one of the office buildings for a short time. Oh, interesting. But basically, they went from East 4th Street to Playhouse Square. Mm-hmm. And um, those were the two main moves. So younger people, will, uh, like myself, well, I'm Excuse not. Excuse me. Uh, well, no, I, no, I mean, <laughs> I was just about to say, well, like, I don't really know. It really is all relative, isn't it? Um, I, I should say, I didn't grow up here, so I've lived here for 30 years, yeah. right? So my, That's a long time. It is a long time now, longer than I've lived at, in, at home, right, in, in my hometown. But so I only knew Otto Mosier's as a Playhouse Square restaurant. Uh, so I associated it very much like a Sardis of New York. Yes. You know, connected to the theater district kind of in, in you know. Well, and, and that's a really important point about Otto Mosier's. And one of the reasons I fought for it, when it was at East 4th, one of, it was the Sardis even then. The Euclid Avenue Opera House was across the street. And they, there was a tunnel that went from the Opera House under the street mm. right into Otto Mosier's. And the, the actors would go through the tunnel and go to Otto Mosier's to eat. And so right from the get-go, he was catering to the theater crowd, not only the theater audience, but the actors as well. Hence, all those famous pictures of the people that were on the walls of Otto Mosier's. They did not have to walk out the front door and down the sidewalk to get to Otto Mosier's. No, they did not. Interesting. <laughs> do, you know, do, do you know if Sardis has something like that or anything? I have no idea. I know. I want to know, you yeah, know how all right? that happens, although New York's so different. However, I, think people... I do know that Cripple Creek, Colorado, yes. during its heyday as a mining town, did have a tunnel that went from uh, a church, actually, into a bordello. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I have a feeling there's a lot of stories there's like that. There's a lot of stories like that in Cripple Creek. Unfortunately, well, I'm not there. <laughs> and and I, I, we're, we'll save this for a little bit in the future in the conversation, but I know that you uncovered um, so many interesting stories, not just about the restaurants, but maybe the buildings that they were in, hotels they were connected to, uh, and famous people that um, signed deals in them or that um, you know had maybe a, a favorite drink or perhaps a, a favorite lady friend that they would meet there, you know, but anyway, this is a, a, a PG-13 podcast, oh, so okay. we, won't, we won't necessarily go down there. No. But something very interesting that you, you mentioned is around 1905, downtown Cleveland had just over 2,400 cafes. That's right. Yeah. I know that's a legit. I found that in two places. Yes. I mean, so it makes me think about right that era what was what was happening and when I went and did some more research on my own which I always do before I I talk to somebody is clevelandhistorical.org is a great website to also supplement some historical information if you're a history buff I highly recommend clevelandhistorical.org um you know from the very late 1800s until about 1940 or 50 I mean Cleveland was just it was booming. booming. It was constantly yes. reinventing themselves, which I think is when a lot of these restaurants started. Right. Or or close. Or close, <laughs> yes, yeah, the case may be. Um, yeah, in, and in 1905, that was right at the time when downtown Cleveland was really coming into itself, and so many businesses were starting. People had to be downtown 
to um, every day for one reason or another. And so eating down there became more important. And not to mention the fact that in 1905, quite a few people still lived downtown in the area that we think of as strictly business. Well, it wasn't Mm -hmm. then. Well, and I just did uh, an interview with Karis Zhang of uh, Midtown Cleveland, specifically about Asiatown. And we were talking about, of course, Asiatown as we know it now. And she reminded me that there actually was a pocket of Asiatown down off of Rockwell uh, for many years. And she said she used a term I I had never heard before. She said it was like a a bachelor city because of so many men who had come to work that that's, you know, that's why cafes, that's why little smaller businesses cropped up, right, to to serve serve the the people that were actually there. I thought that was really interesting. So. You were talking about the family tradition that you had to go down at Christmas time. One of the things that, again, reading your book prompted me to remember is I am very much old enough to remember the five and dimes. I'm very, I do remember growing up and going with my grandma in Pittsburgh to (laughs) Woolworths. And I do remember when Kmart's and Sears had... um, you know, lunch cons- counters, lunch counters. Right. Uh, and later the, the, the candy and the snack, they'd, they'd, they'd pop the popcorn and they'd roast the nuts yeah. and all of that. And it's just so interesting, again, for another podcast for another podcast host, but like um, how our use and or what our expectations of um, shopping and, 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 and stores have changed over the years. You right. know what I mean? I remember yeah. it was an adventure going out. An, yeah. Yeah. And that's really why a lot of the stores developed their cafeterias, their grills, their tea rooms. Um, and when basically the only place to really shop was downtown, uh, the women would come in, and that was an event. And they spent the whole day downtown shopping, and sooner or later they needed to eat. And for a long time, there were no places that they could eat at. A lot of real restaurants wouldn't serve women, particularly during the day. And so the tea rooms and the other stores made it their point to take care of the women shoppers. So that was a big part of the whole mm-hmm. um, event. And then, of course, the bigger department stores like Halley's and Higby's started catering to the women who had their clubs, the so-called ladies who lunch, who would be maybe supporting a nonprofit organization. And they would throw events, fashion shows, book signings, and try and raise money for some of the organizations that they were particularly attached to. Mm. And the tea rooms were a big deal for them. And that is an era that I just, I missed. And I recall, I I feel like I'd recall it very fondly if I had gotten a a taste of that. Because, you know, I was growing up, my my formative years were like the, the mid to late 80s when what was happening, malls. Right. We went to the, to mall, the mall at Christmas time. <laughs> yes. We we put on some nice clothes. Yes. <laughs> Not like the guy that she'd wear down to Sterling Lindner, right? Yes. And we would always oh, shop, and it was almost always combined with e- eating somewhere. Right. Sadly, I remember it was probably a chain like Ponderosa. So, ew. But anyway... <laughs> Sorry, Ponderosa. Yeah, but we're about local food. Yeah, yeah. No, but it is just a really interesting memory. I just remember always wanting to, as a child, 
going up to a lunch counter. It was so fun to sit on the spinning stools. Yes. Um, the service was different. We talk a lot on this podcast about just how the evolution of restaurants and the experiences at restaurants are. Yes. Um, so it looks like you're looking something up. What are you I, looking at? Well, there? I was hoping I could find a memory, but I, I'm not really sure which restaurant it came from. One of the memories that got sent in was from a girl I went to high school with who specifically mentions how we've lost that event thing. Mm -hmm. We don't dress up. We don't go down for special occasions. And she she said very interestingly, yeah, it's probably easier now, but you've lost something in the process. Mm -hmm. We don't have the white gloves. We don't have the dress up and make it feel like a special occasion. Um, I don't remember which restaurant triggered that. Otherwise, I'd read it to you. I do feel like a lot of people in this room here uh, in the live audience will, will remember those days, especially the proximity of the East Siders, the rail line. I mean, it was just very easy, but that's how you got downtown. Like right. you said, you took the bus. We took the bus. Yeah. yeah. Occasionally, if my dad were coming, he would drive. But sometimes even then, we'd take the bus just because. Yeah, there yeah. was a time when people actually, actually took it was the bus. Yeah. Took the bus, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, so I know that you have a treasure trove of stories in your brain. You you speak on this topic, and at the end of this podcast, we'll we'll talk about a couple other places where you will be speaking. So I'm going to turn this over to you and let you sort of just pick and choose from your collective uh, research experience, your knowledge of your own book. Why don't you tell a few stories? or point out a few things that you find especially interesting um, that you've uncovered and that you think uh, uh, the CLE Foodcast audience would enjoy? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Is it okay if I actually read a little something? Sure. Because of all the weird things that have come <laughs> to my uh, attention okay. with this, I think this story is the weirdest. And, and this so, isn't about Finley's philanthropy. No, is it? that's not weird okay. at all compared to this one. This one was a restaurant that was called Rafferty's Monkey Club. Oh, I was so hoping you mentioned this. I know, right? It actually involves. Don't monkey. tell them. Oh, <laughs> there are monkeys involved. Actual yes, monkeys. that's why I wanted to read this because it's too funny. So it came with a sign in the window. That said, a hard-boiled egg with every drink, a beer and poor whiskey cost a dime. This was around 1905. Um, an additional five cents gave you the best brandy, and cocktails were two for a quarter. He showed movies on Saturday nights at the saloon, kind of like a dinner and a show, but more like drinks and a movie. But. The important thing is that, true to its name, the Monkey Club actually had several monkeys, three to be exact, that wandered around with some raccoons. Some three-legged chickens resided in cages by the bar, an intimidating ape named Kai, and a bear with a bad temperament had been rescued from Luna Park, where his irascibility was apparently a liability. <laughs> Even the inebriated customers felt threatened by the ape and the bear, though that did not stop them from sprinkling itching powder on the ape's back or oh. giving him beer to put him to sleep at night. 
So there you have it. It was I'm glad we've advanced as a society from that. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but to me, that was the strangest restaurant that I found. So all right. Well, yeah. let's let's. Well, so while we're talking strange, because yes. you know I want to talk to you about Finley's. Oh yes. Let's talk about that, and then we'll maybe talk about some of the more glamorous and special okay. places. So Finley's philanstery um, was strange, sort of by definition. He um, was an entrepreneur who came into the city with ten dollars in his pockets, and eventually had a whole slew of restaurants in the city. But the philanstery was weird by by most people's standards. Well, I had to look that word up. Yes, it's it's <laughs> kind of weird by itself. So it was a uh, it was called a beefsteak dungeon, and apparently it was very beautiful. But the reason it was called a beefsteak dungeon was because there was actually this tradition going back to England and also in the Revolutionary War, where hotels and bigger facilities would open, essentially, a dungeon in their basement or like a cave and they would serve men and the men would come and they would go down there in white butcher aprons and sit on old crates or barrels and they would eat their dinner with their hands in the dark basically. Apparently, however, the food was very good, and eventually they started letting in women, and it was a very popular place, but that's how it started, and there's a picture in the book of the men sitting on the barrels with their white butcher aprons on. I have no explanation beyond that. A congregationalist group from Wisconsin, however, came there. It was so popular. They did go down there, and apparently they liked the experience so much that when they went back to Wisconsin, they started their own, and Wisconsin had a, a beefsteak dungeon well into the 1930s, and by then, the phase was way out of popularity around here, and uh, Finley's Philanthropy was just a plain old restaurant by that time, so... Weird. I was just about to say, <laughs> weird. Um, I think that's a great example of, of some of the, the theming. Theming was very big for a while. I feel like, in, again, I remember things like Rainforest Cafe, no real monkeys walking around, right? Just kind of like big murals and However, the sound of rain. However, lizards usually have well, this lizards in a cage. This yes. is true. I, 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 did, I do like to see the lizards when I go to Waking Lizard. There were a couple of other restaurants. One that sounds charming that I think I would spend a lot of time at is Alpine Village. Oh, yes. Doesn't that sound great? Yes. Especially on a day like today? My parents used to talk about Alpine Village all the time. Um, it was really a supper club. They brought in big names from Hollywood and everything. Uh, but Herman Perchner, the owner, was the real character and probably the real star. He was most famous for delivering 55 mugs of beer at a time to the restaurant tables and to his customers. And apparently he would slide into the table like a baseball player sliding into home plate. So that was his big thing. The other big thing was he came from a circus background, which was probably why he carried 55 mugs of beer on a tray. Um, the Grotto Circus came to town. They were having trouble with advanced ticket sales. So he told them that they should do some spectacular promotional event. And he told them that they should have Carl Walenda carry him on his back. So the owner of the, the circus took him up on it, got public hall for the event, put a tightrope across 50 feet, 
up. Perchner got on Walenda's back. No rehearsal, no net. And Walenda carried him across the tightrope to the other side. They went down the rope ladder. Perchner supposedly collapsed onto the floor after that harrowing escapade, and everyone burst out into cheers. So <laughs> what about uh, Bouquers? Bouquers was one of my personal memories. Uh, Bouquers, sea sweets, ice cream, fabulous ice creams. It was the place to go. And it was still around long enough that we went there a couple of times. And I remember just being stunned by all the pink and pastel colors in the place. Uh, and it was very popular for quite a while. Another personal favorite of yours, and I think it's just such an interesting story. I bet native Clevelanders in this room probably know a little bit more, but I was so surprised to find this out. The history of Chef Boyardee Uh, here in Cleveland and the connection and that he actually was much more than the guy with the boxes in the grocery store. So tell me about Chef Boyardee. He was a real and true chef. Um, came to New York first from his native Italy and rose quickly. He started learning how to cook in Italy, got to New York, um, started to make a name for himself. Cleveland kind of got jealous because he was getting this publicity and they decided, well, we have to have him here. So they wooed him to Cleveland. His first job, I believe, was at the Hotel Winton as the chef there. I'm not sure that he worked anywhere else before then. Was really getting famous there and then decided to branch out and had his own restaurant the first one was the Garden of Blank. Yeah, it's a beautiful, Italia, Ital- 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 I think, yeah, something like yeah, that. The Garden of Italy or something yes, like that. Yes, yes. Um, and then it became Chef Hector's, then it was Chef Boyardi. Uh, it kept changing names, so you no know, wonder I can't remember. While he was there, he started getting really famous for his pasta dinners. And at that time, in the by this time we were approaching the late 40s, the 50s, Italian food wasn't Nobody knew about it. They didn't know what to do. They were just coming out of the Depression. Things were expensive. And pasta dinners could be put together very inexpensively. And when he first opened the restaurant in the late 30s, um, this was a big deal. So people started asking for his sauce. He wouldn't tell them the recipe. So he would bottle the sauce. And then they'd come back and they'd say, well, it doesn't taste the same. So he said, well, you're using the wrong pasta. So... (laughs) So eventually, he started prepackaging the dinners and basically invented carryout dining. Amazing. Um, and then uh, some friends of his said, you know, we should just package this and sell it. They were grocery store owners, and you know what happened from there. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. how we became the famous Chef Boyardi. Mm-hmm. For me, uh, when we would make those trips downtown, we if my dad was with me, my dad was Italian, and he always would take us to Chef Boyardee on Prospect Avenue. But it was the weirdest looking building. And it was like a warehouse and it had this dumb door. Well, we're going to go here. It's got great spaghetti. And my sister and I thought my dad had lost his mind. And we'd go down those stairs and this giant room with red check tablecloths fabulous food and it was so fascinating and my dad never failed to point out to us you know 
this is really Chef Boyardee like you see in the grocery store, <laughs> that he was a real person. So that was a big deal. <laughs> I think some of the restaurants in downtown, well, first off, I think when you when you travel, you eventually see that not everything is what as it appears, right? The, like the first time I went to a restaurant in like an office, even like Giovanni's, for example, right, you walk yeah. in and you're going, Really? What? <laughs> and then all of a sudden you see. It's just very different. That's not really how we build restaurants anymore. Right. They're all in... Um, a self-contained you know, uh, Yes, or or in a, a lifestyle center like Pinecrest right. or yeah. Crocker Park and all right. of that, which is, again, what we're so used to now, you know? Yeah. There's a restaurant that um, I did not hear of this, but when I was telling people that I was going to talk to you, a lot of people did remember Pewter Mug. Yeah. So tell me about Pewter Mug. Anybody remember that? Yes, yeah. yes. Well, it, it became famous um, for a lot of reasons. It was a place to go, particularly for the workers downtown. Um, but they apparently one of the interesting things about it was the, cust- the regular customers used to have their own mug along the wall. And so that was a big deal that you could go there and you'd have your own mug. And it was around for quite a while. That became part of a chain. And so there were a number of pewter mugs. Once the original one on um, right near Public Square, I think on Frankfort, closed, uh, there were several others. There was one in the Schofield building at East 9th in Euclid that was there for a million years. But then it went out into the suburbs. So mm. the pewter mug chain it was quite popular for quite a while. Mm. Was it as prolific as, say, a brown derby? Or in my memory, it was at least by the time I was in high school and college, there were quite a few oh, around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. People seem to be real familiar yeah. with that one. Yeah. In the book, I know there's a lot in the book. So the <laughs> fact that you even remember things, honestly, impresses me the regularly. Fact that I remember anything yeah. is. <laughs> um, what was the most uh, maybe glamorous or opulent place that you encountered, or maybe that's in the book, or just something that you recall from your own experience? Well. To me, um, what that I recall, the restaurants at whatever they were calling it at the time, Stouffer's Tower City mm-hmm. Hotel, were the most glamorous looking in, in my memory. Mm-hmm. Not that the names ever stayed the same, but to me, that was the glamorous place. I suppose historically, and of course I never saw it because it was torn down before I was even born, I think, the original Hollanden House mm-hmm. and the the restaurants there were supposedly quite opulent. But most of the bigger hotels all had some very fancy restaurant that they were famous for. Um, at Tower City, the English Oak Room was one of the fancier ones. Um, and even in terms of a, of a tea room, the Silver Grill mm-hmm. was, you couldn't not go to the Silver Grill. And that Art Deco design and the f- goldfish fountain, it wasn't a monkey, but hey, they had goldfish, yeah. <laughs> but it was in a pretty fountain. Um, and Guy Cowan, who was part of the Cowan Pottery Factories in Rocky River, was involved in the decoration of the Silver Grill. So that that was a pretty opulent place. I didn't discover that until accidentally, when I was in college, um, a friend of mine who didn't even come from Cleveland had heard about it and we had to go downstairs to pick up some stuff for the theater department and he said oh let's go to the silver grill to eat and so my first experience at the silver grill was kind of accidental but very memorable yeah oh that's such a fun story you know I 
have a few memories of my own. There were, uh, I think, maybe three restaurants in the book that that I personally experienced. And, and you know, this is all, let's say, coming out of the pandemic, we've probably all lost a favorite spot, you know, in the last couple of years. I mean, I know that I'm still mourning the black pig and, you know, <laughs> things have changed. And um, as a result, also restaurants decided to, you know, shrink or change or expand or uh, in the case of like something like a Balaton, uh, leave Shaker Square and go out oh to Sugar gosh. and Falls, right. which is very yeah. fascinating to oh me. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I, we used to go there all the time. Yeah, I feel like with my heritage, I, I need to be going there for sure. But um, my memory is of the New York Spaghetti House, oh, which yeah. you do cover in your book. Um, my story with that is um, when I met my husband in the very early 90s, um, it was right before he started med school. We were both working at Geauga Lake when it was, which is just, again, it's not, again, not lost. here. Lost. lost. Somebody wrote that other book. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there was just a time when we just didn't really have a lot of money. And the New York Spaghetti House was our downtown restaurant. It was pasta, right? So it's kind of oh, affordable. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were some components of that, though, that you mentioned that I certainly didn't know about. But I just loved it. To me, that was when I was I was like on my own and we could afford to go and do that and maybe we would go see a, a show or something downtown. So yeah. that was and really... A, and a lot of people have come to me and said the same thing about New York Spaghetti House, that it was one of the places that as they became an adult, that was a place that they could frequent. I just heard the funniest story about the New York Spaghetti House. I was doing the storytelling program at Beechwood um, a couple of weeks ago, and a lady came up to me afterward, and she said they used to go there all the time. And when the restaurant was getting ready to close, and she was there on one of the last days, she desperately wanted to to buy a plate as a souvenir and the owner would not sell anything. So she's sitting down in the restaurant area and she says to the <laughs> waiter, you know, I really would like to buy a plate as a souvenir. So the waiter positions himself between <laughs> her and everyone around them and he says to her, well, what kind of plate would you like? And she says, well, you know, just a regular little one, kind of like this one. She points to a plate on the table. And he said, I suggest you put that plate in your purse. <laughs> and she still has the plate. <laughs> you know, theft at restaurants is a real thing. I was just talking with... Um, Chris and Katie Wolf. Uh, it was another episode I did a couple of weeks ago with uh, the new restaurant that's going to go into um, Club Isabella. It's gonna. It's called Wolf Pack Chorus. How about that for a restaurant name? <laughs> uh, really interesting branding. Uh, but the chef Chris Wolf has been at Shaker Country Club, and I believe the Country Club in Pepper Pike. So he's. This is his first endeavor into an actual brick and mortar restaurant of his own, um, and they have these really cute uh, table lamps. They're like a little little pudgy little body with a lamp head and I said to Katie as soon as I saw them I go you're gonna have to keep an eye on these and she said I know we thought about that after I get it it's a, it's a very it's a very very real thing but when I started working downtown or or having business lunches downtown I remember feeling very important when I was doing that Sweetwater Cafe oh, yeah. another place that I just thought was great and um, that's Gary Luke Lucarelli. Lucarelli, yeah. I mean so so many other great restaurants that he's had um, most of them I think gone is Sweetwater yeah. is the cat I think no, it's, no, it's yeah, gone. It's They're gone. all gone. Uh, I mean, and horn, big, yes, and hornblowers, yeah. which I want to talk about. Go ahead. Yeah. Say your well, what I wanted to say about Gary Lucarelli and Sweetwater Cafe is the really important thing there was 
he started promoting dinner theater packages with Playhouse Square. And this was when Playhouse Square was just starting to get ready. I was working for Cleveland Opera at the time, and that was a big deal to have the package to go to Sweetwater. We would have coupons. He promoted go to dinner, go to the show, or go to the show, come back here. That was really important both to the restaurant and mm-hmm. to the Playhouse Square theaters and to us as a company. So it was a great spot for yeah. both, both all of his restaurants were always awesome. But yeah, yeah. So hornblowers. Hornblowers. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what I remember. Oh, so okay. I, I, first of all, <laughs> as anyone again who's lived here knows, the the development of the lakefront <laughs> restaurants like always has always been a thing, right? right? Yeah. So hornblowers early 90s yeah 90s. somewhere around there yeah um, I just remember thinking like this is amazing and it was kind of fun but the fact of the matter is is like at the time I don't think the lake was particularly as clean so you would look over the oh, side it had nothing to do with the lake oh it didn't no the oh, lake was the, fi- the smelly fish outside yeah, of it the, okay well, the, the lake was relatively clean um, at that time compared to the 70s That's okay the, however the problem was the barge was up by the dock, and the water would come in, and what would normally come in and go back could not oh. go back because it would get stuck between the barge and the dock. And so you'd get all that refuse built up where the ramps took you in. And um, Does anybody it, remember eating in Hornblowers and looking over the side? Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit it, rough. It was it, rough. It, it would, yeah, it was not the best view, but no. it was a great view if, if you, you looked up. If you yes. looked far into the distance. <laughs> Look at the city. It was yeah. perfect. And then, uh, yeah, and of course, it also had some smells, you know. Well, yeah, because yeah. that would happen. It would get stuck <laughs> right. in here. Well, and anyway, the, it's not here anymore. The, em- <laughs> the employees, that was their worst job, was cleaning out the refuse that kept getting stuck because it was a barge. Delightful. All right. Well, I know we're getting a little bit long on time, and I want to say if anybody is thinking about a question, um, um, I want to end on one other note, an area that I think had some, um, like, symbolism, and I think it relates to a a very important area in downtown today, Short Vincent. Ah. Uh, Short Vincent was, it appeared to me, kind of like the precursor to uh, East Fourth. Uh, East Fourth. Well, they kind of went together. Okay, um, tell me about it. Short Vincent lived longer, basically, with its entertainment than Short Vincent did. Uh, particularly because of the theatrical, which mm-hmm. went for so long. But short, the theatrical restaurant. The theatrical mm-hmm. restaurant, yeah. Um, but Short Vincent was weird in its own right. That area, Short Vincent along East Ninth, had everything from the strip clubs to good restaurants, but most of them were connected one way or another to the mob. The theatrical was owned by Mushy Wexler, who was mob-connected, and Shandor Burns, was also connected there. Uh, they used to say he he always ordered, I think it was a scotch, until the day before he died. And that day he ordered a beer. <laughs> and the next day he was blown up. I don't know if we should blame the beer. <laughs> but in any event, East 4th was not quite as contradictory among itself. There were um, good restaurants, Otto Mosier's that, you know, not not quite as mm-hmm. mobbed up as you will. Was the earlier version of Pickwick there also? There was a Pickwick there, but it had nothing to do with the Pickwick that's there now. There was totally different. Thing. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's become the, if you talk to the people at 
you know, destination Cleveland. It's the yeah. place where everybody wants to take their picture. It looks great. Yeah. It's a great city. Was Short Vincent like that? Was it, I picture it having a lot of lights and just activity I, and you know, by burlesque the t- girls walking up and down. When we went downtown, my father did not take us down, Short oh. Vincent. So until I got to Cleveland Opera in, we moved downtown in around 1982. And I would start taking long walks and uh, so I would walk there by myself. It wasn't mm-hmm. much in 1982. Mm-hmm. It was definitely on its way out. Oh, interesting. Um, so I don't really have any memory of it myself prior to that. I don't think it ever had, you know, fancy lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Rail, who owned Hornblowers but also worked for Stouffer's, talked about how there was a Stouffer's that fronted Short Vincent and Euclid. And you, the, you could actually see over to the Roxy where the girls would sun themselves. And so guys would go in the restaurant, in the restroom and look out, see if they could find, find the girls. Good story. Oh, Good yeah. Good story. Yeah. <laughs> we, all, we all have it, right? <laughs> Does anyone have a question that they would like to ask? The question was, where did I go to find all the information of the really old ones, like the monkey bar? Um, Usually when I find something screwy like that, it's totally by accident. I'm perusing some old newspaper. Um, I'm doing a search on one thing in Google, and it triggers a word in some other article that pops up and then buried in that article is something weird, like the monkey bar. (laughs) And I am just... I am like a magnet. If I see something screwy, half the programs that we do at Eden Valley are attached to some screwball thing that I saw somewhere that I couldn't let go of. Interesting. Another question? Huff's Bakery. Why was it so special? And, because and you know the bread was fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love this question because I also did not grow up here, but um, yeah, Pittsburgh had a oh, certain bakeries as well. But when I moved here, I, uh, Huff wasn't, I don't uh, when, I don't know when Huff closed, but I just remember when it closed, it made it a lot a of deal. news. Well, and when, the, it, and cakes, when Archie started it back yeah. up again, it made news yeah. again. The cakes were good. It just had good stuff. Um, that's about all you could say. It was really good. Um, I didn't delve into any history of that, of course, because it wasn't a restaurant. But you're right. It's probably got some great, interesting information about it. Someone actually did give me one of the last remaining Huff bread bags after it closed um, as kind of a souvenir, which maybe one day I'll get a story to go with the bag. But <laughs> I think that's really fun. I know that some people have written some Huff history, and I am actually thinking, like, that would make a really good podcast. I know. But I'm going to have to find someone. I will. I have to find I'll the, work on Well, that. or Archie, the or, guy uh, that yeah. revived it, because he was a baker at Huff for many years and there then ended up buying it. Another question? What about Stouffer's? Yes. Well, Stouffer's did start here as a lunch counter in downtown Cleveland. And as more and more family members got involved with the company, they began spreading out. There's a pretty big list of stories and mentioning of Stouffer's. Tom Rail worked for Stouffer's, the guy who eventually owned Hornblowers, and they were spread out all over the place. There were several Stouffer's in the downtown area. Um... So they were a, a big, big thing. So I have to tell the Stouffer's funny story about the chandelier that Tom told me. Well, he was working down at the one near Playhouse Square by 13th there. And um, they had chandeliers like that. And there was a new guy. And he told the new kid, you need to clean the chandeliers. So the 
the kid gets on a ladder, as you would expect, and he's cleaning the chandeliers, and all of a sudden, Tom hears, bam, <laughs> the chandelier's on the ground. Turned out that instead of moving the ladder, the kid was turning the sh chandelier, and he unscrewed it. <laughs> so Tom said he went running in there. None of the bigwigs were there. The chandelier was mainly bent. They unbent it as best they could. The two of them hung it back up, walked away. Never told anyone. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> Um, all right, let's do one more question and then we'll wrap the podcast portion up and we'll just ask some more questions and talk some restaurant shop. Go ahead. Do I know anything about what's going on with Nighttown? Other than the fact that I went there to get pictures of the famous mural that's in there that used to be down by Kornman's, uh, no, I do not. <laughs> I know, and I will add that it is something that I check into every couple of weeks to see if there's some new information on it, and um, so many of us are looking forward to seeing that revival for sure. Yeah, yeah. Betty Lou, it's been such a fun romp with you through Thank history, you. through Cleveland history. Um, I like that, a romp through A romp restaurants. through dining okay. history, yeah. And, it, and again, I, it, it gives me such, you know, an extra layer of pleasure being that I didn't grow up here. So I'm still learning. And, you know, Laura DeMarco and her Lost Cleveland oh, books. Yeah. It's a great series. Uh, Michael Dale Aloya De right. has written a very similar book about um, the, department stores. Yes, and I mean, the hotels. And the hotels. I mean, there's just so many um, great resources. But it's just a fun read. And I, I would imagine that if you grew up here and you have some family history here, some of these things will really mean something to you. But I can also tell you that she's uh, her book is at Max Bax, Loganberry, Visible voice books or should be or could be sold out but you could always go in and ask for it i got Please mine do. on amazon which i always i do not recommend but i the second i heard about it i immediately was like i have to buy this book and i did and i also i think you just posted that you were pretty sure it was at crocker park barnes and noble right barnes and noble having a revival so happy for them because yeah. more bookstores yes right right uh, big bookstores little bookstores um if you'd like to hear my storytelling program that goes with the book a tour of Cleveland's restaurants in 30 minutes, more or less. Uh, I'll be at the Kirtland Library in April. It's a free program. And check our calendar regularly because I have some contracts coming in. And so they'll, the schedule will be changing. It changes all the time as I add programs. And our other programs are also... Uh, coming up, and so you might want to see one of the other historical programs that we do at Yeah, Ingali. you do a whole lot. I, we I do a lot. No, I had no idea. And, and uh, I have to tell you, um, our big event is, or our biggest project to date, is our Emmy-nominated documentary, Trail Magic, the Grandma Gatewood story. If you don't know who Grandma Gatewood is, see me afterwards. Um, I will tell you this much, at 67 years old, after raising 11 children and surviving domestic abuse, she was the first woman to solo through hike the Appalachian Trail. So um, you need to know story. her story. Food lovers are often nature lovers. She was also often... a, a good cook. Killer. Oh, interesting. Yes, and I imagine she, was she got a... really good at foraging. Yes, she was good <laughs> at foraging. She ate off the land, so she'd be right. perfect for you. But her big thing was oatmeal raisin cookies. So, oh, that's yeah. so interesting. 
<laughs> Betty Lou, thank you on that note. I really want an oatmeal raisin cookie from Grandma Gatewood. Thank you so I'll much for the recipe. being on the CLE Foodcast. And thank you to the 21st Century Club for hosting us today. It's been our pleasure. And if you want to know more about the podcast, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, CLE Foodcast. If you're a podcast user, you probably have your favorite podcast platform, whether that is Spotify or Apple or Google. And if I'm talking gibberish to you, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> thank you so much for having us here today. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. The CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork and the Road Productions. My sound engineer is Bill Connors. I'm thrilled to partner with local organizations, small businesses, and nonprofit entities. If you are interested, please email me at clefoodcast at gmail.com. I'm also happy to share that I am partnering with the Cleveland International Film Festival, coming to Playhouse Square March 22nd through April 1st. I'll be sharing details about the festival and giving you information on how to get involved, how to become a member, where to eat in between films, and I just might even have some ticket giveaways. In the meantime, check out clevelandfilm.org and remember, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table.